So we just tried to broadcast and starting again. And today, <clears throat> July 4th, 5th, today is July 6th. And this is two days after the departure of Bhakti Charaswami. So I decided that I would like to share with all of you what I believe is in his heart and what he would want us to understand from his life and take forward. And that's what I want to share. And I will share, and I'll also share some of my experiences with him. But I think sharing what's in his heart is extremely important for all of us and especially important for the future of ISKCON. So I'll, I'll begin just sharing a few of my experiences with him, and that will give time for others to come online because what I share later I think will be most significant. And, and so I, I just want to wait to get to there, to that point. So uh, many of us who joined ISKCON, when asked why we would join, or were, when asked, were you thinking when you were young that you would become a sadhu? Most of us would say no. A few of us might say I was thinking of becoming a monk or a nun. But most of us would say no, I never thought uh, myself as a religious person or, uh, or dedicating myself to this. But Bhakti Swami, when he was young, he used to think about becoming a sadhu. And he said, I thought that was normal that young boys would think about becoming sadhus. Just like young boys in America often at least in my generation, when you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? They'd say, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a policeman. So, you know, that was quite normal. So he was thinking about becoming a sadhu. I think most of us were not thinking about becomes, becoming sadhus. We were thinking about becoming other things. And, and he said that, I thought that, was, I thought that every young boy thought that way. And that, <laughs> that indicates what's in his mind and heart from a very early age, that he was thinking, you know, someday I'll become a sadhu and renounce everything. So that was, that's indication of a great soul, right from the beginning. And if, if you, you may have heard the stories, because it's been it's discussed a little bit, that um, he became, he just kind of became fed up and hit a point where he went back to India from school in Germany to find a guru. That was his decision. He went to the Himalayas, couldn't find one. And then when he got Prabhupada's books, he read the Nectar Devotion, he got it from a friend who had become a devotee, he just immediately said, this is my guru. It was like it all happened. And his, his deep connection with Prabhupada, because it's such a good example for all of us, when he, when he read Prabhupada's book, right away he knew this is my guru. That means right from the beginning there's a deep connection. I don't think everyone, when they read Prabhupada's books, thinks that evening, I found my guru. Here's my guru. I need to meet him. I need to give my life to him. So right from the beginning, there was this deep connection. And Maharaj says that when he finally met Prabhupada personally, that was in Kumbh Mela, his, he said his heart, when Prabhupada looked at him and he was in his, in his presence, his heart was beating so hard, 
he wasn't really present to what was going on. It was, it was such an amazing experience. So this connection he had with Prabhupada was, I would say, special, but also unusual. I mean, we all were moved when we saw Prabhupada, but not like that, not like, like something that special. And, and that was his whole life. That was just the trajectory of his whole life was this special connection with Prabhupada. And you'll, you'll often see when Maharaj speaks, he speaks about remaining in ISKCON and remaining dedicated. People take it like, oh, he's a GBC, so <clears throat> he just wants us all to follow the GBC. And it's almost like a political statement. You know, cooperate under the GBC. Well, you're a GBC, so you want everyone to cooperate. That's why you're saying that. It's not at all like that. It's that his connection was so it was so deep that everything Iskan for him was non-different than Prabhupada personally. And so as as much as he was attached to Prabhupada, to that same degree, he was attached to Iskon because he saw Iskon as non-different than Prabhupada. And then Rita Anandamar said something which was quite amazing I'd like to share with you. He said, you know, Prabhupada had many sons, but Prabhupada's sons didn't become devotees, at least not fully. And Rita Anandamar said, Bhakti Charaswami was the son that Prabhupada always wanted that never had, a intelligent, educated Bengali, who became a devotee. And I thought that was so beautiful. So there is this very, very deep connection, and you will see that if, if you listen to Maharaj speak, and, and you understand this context, then what he's speaking about makes more sense. It's like this deep, excuse me, deep, deep, deep connection with Prabhupada that comes out as this deep connection with Iskan, because he never, it wasn't like some, you know, just loyalty to a company, but it was all a manifestation of loyalty to Prabhupada. So whenever he's talking about Iskan, in his mind and heart, he's just talking about devotion to Prabhupada. If I, if I say, stay in Iskan, work within Iskan, he's saying, stay with Prabhupada, work with Prabhupada. Of course, people who leave Iskan don't think they're leaving Prabhupada. And I don't think he would accuse them of that, but in his heart, his feeling is, if I left Iskan, I'm leaving Prabhupada, because Prabhupada is Iskan, and Prabhupada is everything to me, and, and Iskan is Prabhupada's baby. Uh, it was his, you know, like, here, here is my baby, I'm leaving, I'm handing you this baby, this is, this is my heart, I'm giving you my heart, this is what's dear to me. So that's how Maharaj saw, that's how Maharaj saw his relationship with Prabhupada and Iskand, they were the same thing. That devotion to Prabhupada meant devotion to Iskand, devotion to Iskand meant devotion to Prabhupada. Taking care of Iskand was like taking care of Prabhupada's body. He didn't see it any different, and I think this is, this is a very, very important idea, because Every organization has problems, every organization has challenges, every organization has leadership that doesn't always act properly or in a way we would expect. And 
he he established this this siddhanta so deeply and i think this is very important that iskon as Prabhupada said iskon is my body and a lot of times when we talk about iskon people think well, it's just an organization and organizations you know organizations have so many problems and you know i'm devoted to Prabhupada, but not iskon bhakti charaswami never made that distinction he didn't want us to make that distinction he he made it very clear that if you're criticizing iskon you're criticizing Prabhupada. if you love Prabhupada, you will work to make iskon better so that's really important because as iskon grows there will always be people who will make that distinction i'm devoted to Prabhupada. i just don't like iskon i don't like what the movement's doing i don't like where it's going i don't like the leadership and that may all be true. It's not that he liked where everything was going. He didn't, but he didn't leave because he saw this was Prabhupada. You can't leave Prabhupada because you don't like the way things are going. You have to make it better. Um, uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's the first point, that, he, that we should not distinguish Iskand and Prabhupada, that you can't, you can't, leave ISKCON without leaving Prabhupada to some degree. It, it's an illusion. And I, I know some people who have left ISKCON would criticize me for that. And I don't want to say this absolutely, and I don't want to say they're being condemned by Prabhupada. But I, I want to say that Prabhupada's heart was within ISKCON and making it better. And that's how Bhakti Chiru Swami saw it. And that's how he lived. And that's how he preached. So his he had a very, very deep relationship with Prabhupada. If you read anything about his life, or know anything about him, or just listen to him talk, you can you can see he had a very, very deep connection with Prabhupada. It's very inspiring to see how dedicated he was, like totally fixed in service to Prabhupada, no matter what. And that connection to Prabhupada was his connection to working in Iskand. And I'll give you an example of this. I was, well, let me give a little history. I don't know if I met Maharaj before 1989. That's when I, when he was there, he had come to Mauritius. I had come to Mauritius. I had been the president of Mauritius uh, in 1982 and 1983 for about a year, year and a half. And then I, I left Mauritius we installed deities, and after that I left and turned it over to another godbrother. And in 1989, I felt I should come back and help. I felt some connection. There, he was there. So I can't remember if we ever had any association. I met him before that, I don't remember. And at that time he had no position. I don't think he was GVC or anything. He was just a simple sadhu. And I particularly remember we had given him a room in the temple and the only thing in that room was a little desk on the floor and some straw mats and that was his room and that's where he slept and that's where he did all his work. He was translating Bengali, Papa's books into Bengali at that time. So the whole time he was there that was his focus, that's just what he did. Girashami wanted him there for association and to help the Yatra and um, a few years before that, the GBC guru had left, and four years before that, the previous GBC guru had left. So the Mauritian Yatra had been hit hard. 
like a one-two punch. You know, in boxing, if the first one doesn't knock you out, the second one could. So they got hit twice, and Madhira Swami just, you know, wanted more devotees to come and help, so he invited Bhakti Swami. He felt that his influence on the devotees there would be very powerful. Because at that point, when you've lost two gurus, your faith in Iskand would be weak, so he wanted to bring the right person who could instill faith. So that's, that's when I first met him. And then, that was, that was 89. So, yeah, it was 89. And then he had become GBC. He must have become GBC around that time. I don't think he was GBC then. If he was, I didn't get the impression he was, because he was, he was like a simple sadhu, just living on the floor and translating all day. And so I thought, how could he be a GBC? But, so what happened was, um, we, we were trying to build a temple, um, bring in more devotees, make things happen faster. And, and sometimes when you're, you're trying to do a lot, you need more help. And so we felt to have a co-GBC would really be, really, really, really help us. And so we asked Bhakichara Swami, and he agreed. And I, probably he agreed reluctantly, but I think he saw that he could contribute. So he came. And I, I could see that he was expert manager and detail-oriented, but I could see that he would prefer just to study and do more artistic things, like you know, he was a musician, he, he did the, the Prabhupada movie, you know, to, to make movies, to do music, he, he started this, to do creative things, started to do Jane, you know, more of that and let other people manage. So one time I was in his office in Mauritius, we gave him a room, and um, we had some CDs of classical Indian music. And I said, I said, what's this? He said, management is so mundane, I need something a little more profound. <laughs> so I could see it was, it was an austerity, you know. So he's, if you see his history, the GBC, it sent him to many, many troubled situations because he was a peacemaker. He was someone that could bring people together. He was someone that everybody could understand. His motive was just to please Prabhupada. And he knew how to bring different groups together. So they'd send him to all these difficult, troubled spots. He became GBC, Mauritius, South Africa. At South Africa also, the same two gurus had left. So he's coming into troubled zone. He came into New York when no one could manage it. Things couldn't get along years ago. He came in and, and he came to France after um, the gurus there had left and nobody could really bring devotees together. So he was, always, he was always being sent to these troubled situations and I am pretty certain he would have been very happy <laughs> just to be doing something more philosophical and more creative. Definitely, there's no, there's no question. But he did it because he saw service to ISKCON as direct service to Prabhupada's feet. So, one experience I had that stood out, as you know, in ISKCON, if we say, if I say to you, 
well, um, I need to talk to you, let's talk at 12. 12 could mean 12, it could mean 12.03, it could mean 12.06. If it's a meaning, it's in, in, in some cultures, 12 could mean 12.30, 12 could mean 1, it could mean you come if you can. We all know that, right? It's, it's, it's kind of rare to have a meeting in ISKCON where everyone, every other percent of the attendees actually come on time. So, Maharaj was helping manage, I was a temple president, so we're always interacting. There were so many problems at that time, so many things to deal with. So we're going to have a meeting at noon. And the rooms we were in were on a, um, were on a veranda. So there's, I don't know how to explain this. Here's my room, here's his room, and next to that is a bathroom. So you walk out, you walk out from my room, it's on a veranda, and you walk out the veranda, walk by his room. So I went to go to the bathroom, it was five minutes to 12, we had a meeting at 12, and I could see that he was resting. So I went to the bathroom, came back, and I thought, well, he's resting, I'll come back at like five minutes after 12 and see if he's awake. I don't want to wake him up. If he's tired for the meeting, it's not that important. So I come like 12.05 or 12.03, something. It was like a few minutes later. And he says, why are you late? <laughs> and I said, because at 5 to 12 I saw you were resting. I, I didn't want to wake you up. And he said, no, I was up and ready at 12. And I said, and then I, I said to myself, uh, now I understand who Bhakti Chosuami is. <laughs> he says he's going to be ready at twelve. He's not messing around. He's like he's like serious. You know. Then another thing happened that, uh, that was very similar. So this year that Bhakti Chosuami was uh, there for John Mastami, it was 1992. And 1992 was the biggest John Mastami up to date we ever had in Mauritius. We made a huge endeavor to make it big because in Mauritius most of the people are Shiva Bhaktas. So Jamastami was, it wasn't like a Shiva Ratri. Shiva Ratri, the whole country stops. But Jamastami was kind of like a side, it was like Valentine's Day compared to Christmas. Not a big thing. And we wanted to make it a big thing. So Maharaj was there. We, we, it, Girashwami was there. He, we, he brought people from South Africa, from South Africa. We in the country, big people in big positions helping us organize. It was a huge, huge effort. We, I think it was it went for four days or something. So every year, this one Mataji and her crew stays on Srila Prabhupada for his Prabhupada's appearance day, and then it's offered at noon. So, Jamasmi Day, big event. I doubt I went to bed before 2 a.m., maybe something like 3 a.m. And then Vyas Puja is the next day, and Vyas Puja was part of the big event that we advertised. So we expected a big crowd to also be there. And so I got up at 8 o'clock, as I remember, just so I, you know, would be rested. I couldn't get up earlier. I would be a mess. So I thought I need to be rested, so at least let me rest five hours. So I got up at 8 o'clock. You know, assuming that all night this woman was cooking and everything was on schedule, 
uh, lo and behold, we find out it was probably like, like, I, I don't think we found out until it was time for the offering that actually she got the flu and she didn't show up in the kitchen till like 10 o'clock, so the offering wasn't ready. And Maharaj was so upset. And then he said, Prabhupada takes prasadam at noon. How could you not have this at noon? He was so, out of his love for Prabhupada, he was so upset. And I had no idea what was going on because every year she would cook and I just had no idea because she didn't tell me she wasn't cooking. And so I had no idea it wasn't going on. So I just got up tried, trying to get my rounds done. Everyone's running around. Nobody's telling me the offering's not there. And then we find out around noontime or, or around 11 or 11.30 that they just started cooking. And I, I guess she felt that making the offering at noon was not an issue. And it was so important to him. He said, how can you do that? Prabhupada eats at noon. So I got mercifully chastised because if you're the president, <laughs> whatever happens, it's your responsibility. Even if you have no idea what's going on, ultimately it's your responsibility. So um, again, it, it showed, it showed this, this relationship we have with Prabhupada. So he's like, how could you do How could you not feed Prabhupada like that? So when I look at Maharaj and my association with him, oh, let me tell another story. Let me tell two more stories and then we're going to gradually turn this into a, a philosophical discussion about Guru. But I was in South Africa, when was this? Maybe it was five years ago, and I was just there, I think, for Rathyatra, and Maharaj was there, and many senior devotees were there. So this one night, they wanted to have a kata, Prabhupada kata, in one of the temples. There's two temples in the Durban area. And so Bhakti Chaitanya Swami, Bhakti Chiru Swami, myself, and Shudi Prabhu, Shudi Prabhu was in South Africa, one of the first devotees there. And they said, you know, can you tell some Prabhupada Leela, Prabhupada Kata? So I told some Kata from the very early days. It was some of, of, sto of stories of our personal sacrifices and austerities we did as very young devotees, living in vans and traveling, not having money, not knowing where we're going to live, things of that nature, and then Krishna providing everything. But but this like huge sacrifice in, in establishing. And Maharaj came, the story I was telling took place in 1970-71. Maharaj came to ISKCON in 75. So I think from what Maharaj told me, I got the impression that he didn't know a lot of this early history. He wasn't involved with it. And even if he joined earlier, this was history in America he may not know about. So, after I told that story, it, it was a story of austerity and sacrifice and, and lots of anxiety that, that I went through in my service to Prabhupada. And he said something to me that I think only he would say. After I finished, he grabbed my hand and he said, thank you for doing that. And I was thinking, wow, no one ever, no one ever said that to me. No one ever said, 
thank you for making that sacrifice. But he was, he was a sensitive person, and and that means that the sac because he loved Prabhupada, that anyone who made a sacrifice for Prabhupada that touched him. So when he was thanking me, it, it was in relation. To, wow, you did that for Prabhupada. You did that for this person I love so much. Thank you for doing that. So that, you know, it's just one thing he said, of many things he may have said to me that I don't remember. But that was like, whoa. That wasn't, that was not ordinary. It, it's not like every day some god brother comes to me and says, I just wanted to thank you for all, all you're doing. You know, the second. Although, you know, sometimes they do. But in that context, it was, I don't know, it just, it seemed unique. Then, I think this maybe like four years ago, I was in Mayapur and I was speaking with Kripa Moya and we were sitting down outside in front of the temple where the bookstore is. And then Maharaj came out of the temple, and so it must have been after class or something. Maharaj was coming out, out of the temple walking back to where he was staying. And so we saw him, so we stood up. And Maharaj was asking how we're doing and how we're, long we're staying. And Kripa Moy said, I'm, I'm leaving today. And I'm going to such and such a place. And, and Maharaj said, well, how are you getting there? And I think Kripa Moyaprabhu said, oh, I'm taking a train or a taxi. And Maharaj said, I have a car and a driver. You don't have to do that. I'll give, I'll give it to you, you take it. So Maharaj was like that, like, you know, the loving brother, you know, like, I have this facility, so why should you not have to have it? So I, I was thinking, yeah, that was like, okay, that was like another unusual thing. It's not, it's not normal that when you tell a godbrother you're leaving, they ask, they try to figure out how they can make it easier for you, or if... Of course, you might say, not everyone has their own car. Well, that's true. But even if you have some facility, it's not like you offer it to your godbrother. So it was, like, it was immediately like, why? No, you shouldn't have to do that. You don't have to. I have a car, I have a driver. You, Something like that. Then, because Maharaj and I worked in Mauritius, Either I was asking him if he's going to Mauritius, or he was asking me something about that, or um, some discussion about it. And he was saying, no, I'm not going there anymore. He had been GBC for a while, but um, he didn't have the time to put into it. And I don't think he, he, he felt he could help the situation much more than he did. And there are a lot of there are a lot of little petty problems that that he was dealing with in Mauritius, and he had bigger things to do, and so he felt like, kind of like these problems probably will never they'll always just go on. It's kind of like just the nature of small countries and islands that you know um, these things go on. So he felt you know he had a bigger mission and bigger projects to deal with, and so I said you know are you going back to Mauritius? And he he said no. And I said something like, let's, you know, he, he said something like, I decided not to. And I, and I said something like, that's probably a good decision. It was a little 
little sarcastic, like, yeah, what you had to go through there, you know, it's like, it's very petty. And it was, his response was interesting. He just said, he, he, he just said, he didn't say anything. He just, he didn't respond to like, I was kind of playing into like, yeah, it was a good decision you left. And his, his response, he didn't play into that. It was more like, well, I have other services, so I'm not doing that. And, and I was kind of playing to it. Yeah, it, it's kind of not worth doing it. And there's so many problems there. And why put energy into it? He didn't go with that at all. And it stood out because that's where I was going with it. I was being sarcastic. And he didn't respond to that. And I remember that. And, and I thought, he's a gentleman. He's cultured. And he wouldn't play into anything that wasn't right. And what I said, actually, you know, a little bit in jest, you know, it's like probably a good decision you're not going back because like you know why there's so many problems. And he just he he didn't play into that. And and after that happened, he, not after, immediately when that happened, I thought, I said the wrong thing. He's a gentleman. He would not have said that. And his response was no response. So it, it was a polite way, and I don't think this was his intention, but it was a polite way of saying, you shouldn't say that. That was not his intention, but that, that's the message that Super Soul gave to me. You shouldn't have said that. And it was because he was such a gentleman that that's how he responded. And that had such an impact on me, because I see often our behavior as Westerners, just to be, and I think most Western devotees will acknowledge and admit this, it's uh, sometimes not as refined as it should be. And Bhakti Charaswami's behavior was very refined. And when I would think of him, I would always think of refined, or as Ridan Anamar said, um, he was a real gentleman, or you could say, he was the gentleman of Iskon. You know, his behavior was refined. And I always, when I saw him, it was like, I would see, okay, this is, this is the standard. This is how you should act. This is the, he knows etiquette. He knows Vaishnava behavior. So when you see him act, you go, okay, just take note of that. That's how you're supposed to act. And then you as an American may not always act that way because your culture is different. But as this refined cultured Bengali gentleman, just notice what he's doing. It will refine your, it will, it will, you will become more refined. That's how I took it personally. This is just, I don't know how others took it. But that's how I would suggest you also taking it when you hear about his pastimes or you hear his lectures or you see he's in situations where. I would have said this, or I would have done this, and you see that he didn't do that. And just take note, oh, okay, that's, that's how a Vaishnava behaves. And you may say, you may say to me, no, we feel you act that way also, but I'm just saying personally, I don't feel I do. Not, not on his level. He was always an example to me of, of, 
of Vaishnav culture, Vaishnav etiquette, Vaishnav behavior. He always maintained it, and that's what Vaishnav etiquette means, to maintain the behavior of a Vaishnav in all situations. So, I was thinking about this. He, he was very cultured. He was thinking from birth, I want to be a sadhu. He got first and second initiation at the same time. Three months later, got sannyasa and became Prabhupada's personal servant. You know, that's not ordinary. That, it's, like, it's like he almost surpassed everyone, even, even surpassed where we are today in three months. So, he's not an ordinary person by any stretch of the imagination. And we have to appreciate about the, the depth of his sadhuness. And as I was saying earlier, the depth of his relationship with Prabhupada was a manifestation of the depth of his Krishna consciousness because they go together simultaneously. Your, your connection with your spiritual master and your connection with Krishna and Krishna consciousness and your depth of bhakti, they're not different. You know, someone can't say, well, you know, my guru this and that, but I love Krishna. Is gone, but I'm leaving. I love Prabhupada, but I'm leaving. It doesn't exactly work that way. It's synergistic. It's holistic. You have one, you have them all. So, so everything that I see in terms of his behavior, his dedication, it all centers around Prabhupada as the hub, and everything Vaishnava behavior, his iskon, his willingness to be GBC, even though he didn't like managing his sacrifice to come to America, start that project, he would be a lot happier just hanging in Ujjain or Mayapur and studying, teaching Shastra and teaching Leela, that would be, you know, he'd be happy. But he takes on these projects because his heart is Prabhupada and he knows what Prabhupada wants. So, now, I want to talk about what was deeply in his heart and what deeply concerned him. It was that he didn't feel that Prabhupada was the center of ISKCON, and he felt that the position of the Diksha Guru had eclipsed two things. One, Prabhupada being the center of focus and attention, primary center of focus and attention. Center, we do Guru Puja every day. We read his books. He didn't mean it that way. He meant it in every sphere, on every level, where we get our instruction, where we feel our strongest connection, how we understand how we're being liberated, and that everything is from Prabhupada. Everyone else is just bringing you to Prabhupada. Everyone else is little, 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 little. Prabhupada's the sun, we're little ray. He felt that was being eclipsed, and as many devotees do. But it was of extreme concern to him. It actually bothered him. I would say it bothered him 24-7. He talked about it so much. Because he felt that if Prabhupada doesn't actually become the center in everyone's life and heart, that in future generations, Prabhupada's position, Prabhupada's teachings, everything about Prabhupada is going to be lost. And other gurus, other acharyas, will dominate the landscape of ISKCON and Prabhupada will be sidelined. And this, you might think, no, that's not going to happen. No, it's a real concern. 
and many senior devotees are very concerned about this. And he is at the helm of this concern. That, and, and if you ever hear him talk about staying in ISKCON, staying with Prabhupada, Prabhupada in the center, it's all being generated from this concern. Now, now, let me explain why this concern is there for those of you who joined ISKCON after Prabhupada left. When Prabhupada was here, of course, there was only one guru. So, I just want to give you a picture of the landscape of ISKCON when Prabhupada was here. Very, very rare there would be a recording of any lecture by anybody other than Prabhupada. And that meant it was very rare for anyone to hear any other lecture other than Prabhupada's. Because there weren't any, and if there were, you know, not that many people would be that interested. And it wasn't, you know, let's say I recorded a lecture and, and people said, hey, that's a nice lecture, can I hear it? You know, it would go around, but there was no digital media, so you'd have to actually get a tape. And you'd have to copy that tape to another tape. So it'd be like next generation, by the, you know, the third, fourth generation of cassette recorders. You're copying it through speakers, not, you know, generally at least at some point, not that you'd have copy machines. And even if you had copy machines, every generation degraded so that it just wasn't a good facility. Whereas with Prabhupada, we had a whole ministry. And so all the tape ministries came after Prabhupada left, and the gurus had their own tape ministries. So during Prabhupada's time, I rarely remember ever hearing recorded lectures of anyone, just because they weren't available. And there wasn't a great interest in hearing them. We had Prabhupada's time. Prabhupada was lecturing every day. And there was a tape ministry. So everywhere you go, everywhere in ISKCON, in everyone's cassette player, in everyone's Walkman, in every temple, were lectures of Prabhupada. Now there were kirtans. You had Vishnu John Swami kirtans. You had a few albums devotees made. Radha Krishna like that. But that, I would say, was probably, maybe there were like four other recordings, five maximum other recordings of other devotees, and we had numerous recordings of Prabhupada. So, generally in any temple you would, went, would go to, you would hear Kirtan's Bhajans of Prabhupada. So Kirtan's Bhajans of Prabhupada, naturally, he was our guru, that's what we wanted to listen to. Lectures of Prabhupada, morning walk com conversations, room conversations, that's what everyone was listening to. And all the news that we were getting was about who? About what? Where is Prabhupada? What is he doing? What is he saying? That was Iskand up to the time Prabhupada left. So there was no question of keeping Prabhupada in the center. You didn't have to keep him. He was the center. We're all his disciples. He was the center of our life. Was, there was no competition that somebody else is in some way kind of dominating the attention of the devotees. I mean, there were devotees who were powerful, who were attractive, we liked listening to, we liked listening to their kirtans. But it was just sun rays in comparison to Prabhupada because we all saw them as just little rays of Prabhupada and nothing in comparison to Prabhupada. So there was, there was no question that, that they could ever eclipse Prabhupada or ever sidelight Prabhupada, it wouldn't happen. There, you know, he, Prabhupada was the only guru, there were no other gurus. So, 
And some devotees have asked me to describe this history, so it wasn't my intention to describe this history, but in order to express what I feel Bhakti Swami wants the world of ISKCON to understand deeply and what he dedicated his life to live and explain, I have to explain a little bit of this history. So, we had the idea that Srila Prabhupada, as, as Acharya, whatever he does, we should copy. He's teaching us how to live by his example. So then we thought, or many, not everybody thought, but those who, those who seem to be moving ISKCON, making the decisions for the international ISKCON, locally and internationally, thought, if now we have 11 new gurus, they need to do what Prabhupada did, because Prabhupada set the example. So what did Prabhupada do? Every day he had Guru Puja, he had his own rooms, he had his own cooks, he had his own seats, he had his own car, you know. And everything that we could do in our power to make, to facilitate Prabhupada's service, to make his life comfortable, we would do. And so that was the philosophy. So now instead of Prabhupada being the center, the new gurus who were were now following in Prabhupada's footsteps, not all of them thought this, but the movement was pu for pushing that this is how it should be done. So they convinced them all to do it. Some, I would say most of them bought into it, but some didn't. It felt very awkward and wrong. But this is what the movement did, and this was the ignorance. They thought, Prabhupada is gone, there's an absence, we need to replace him, and we will replace him with these new acharyas. And we thought, because Prabhupada appointed them, he transferred his shakti, so now they were all way above everybody else. There was a lot of confusion. We didn't understand. We thought, Prabhupada made these people gurus because they're pure devotees. He gave him his shakti. We need to now replace Prabhupada in some way with them. And let me try to explain psychologically what I think was happening. I think the loss was so deep that we needed someone to sit on a Vyasasan who we could honor and worship, who we, you know, because we didn't feel we could exist without Prabhupada. So we thought, well, we'll put someone else up there. He'll be the guru. And even for us as God brothers, he'll be strength for us. And even some of the God brothers started saying, well, now, if you want to be connected with Prabhupada, you have to be connected with me. You have to work with me, you have to worship me. It, it got very, very crazy. Um, so let me tell you my personal experience of this. I, I remember one devotee, that I was in Los Angeles when Prabhupada left, and one, one devotee was pushing, you know, pushing, pushing. Prop, these new gurus, they're pure devotees. We have to worship them like Prabhupada. This is what the Shastra... And then you read in the Shastra what it says about the pure devotee. How he's non-different from Krishna, worshipped as God. So we were just trying to follow the Shastra with them. So I remember when they built a Vyasasana, there was a permanent for the guru. So if you were a guru and you went to a temple... You did not sit on the seat of the Bhagavatam speaker. You sat on a Vyasasan that was almost as big as Prabhupada's. And like some temples you'll go to now, you'll see in South Africa and Dallas, 
you'll see Prabhupada's Vyasasan, then you'll see another asasan, but on the other on the other asan they'll have Tulsi or book display. And it's the same height or it's like that much of that guru who was the acharya of that zone. Because in those days there was only one guru in that zone and everyone who came became that person's disciple. And if they didn't want to be that person's disciple, there was a little subtle, maybe not such subtle pleasure, like what's wrong with you? Why don't you accept him? He's the guru. So the first time this guru in Los Angeles, Rameshwar Maharaj at that time, who was not into this, he was not into this at all. He was he was one of the most practical people. He just wanted to serve Prabhupada and he was willing to do, you know, he'd sit on a bed of nails if that would please Prabhupada. So he was not into seats. He didn't like it. He he felt uncomfortable being honored and worshipped. He really did. But he was forced into it because that was prevailing ethos. And he couldn't, they wouldn't let him. He tried to throw out the seat and the GBC came to him and said, you can't do this because it would disrupt the whole ethos that's going on with the other GBC. I was in the meeting with him because I was one of the leaders. Of I was in the meeting with him with about five other GBC men who said, you cannot do this. And he's saying, but there's no history outside of Prabhupada taking Guru Puja daily. There's no history in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. The, everybody sits on the same seat. Nobody has an exalted seat. No, this is Prabhupada. He set the example. He's the charge. So there's like so much confusion. And so the first day that Rameshwar Prabhu sat on that Vyasasan, there was this intense feeling coming over me. This does not feel right. There is something terribly wrong with this. But at that point, because of the pressure that there are pure devotees, Prabhupada's the Acharya, you have to do the Guru, you have to be a Guru as a Guru. There was so much of that coming, I couldn't process that feeling. But I, I'm sure many, many devotees at that time had this same gut intuition. This does not feel right. There's something wrong with this. And what started happening in ISKCON, there was a shift from focus on Prabhupada to focus on the present guru, who was a zonal guru, who we call Acharya. We gave them names, Vishnupad, Acharya Dev, Acharya Pad, like that. They all had, you know, it was like the whole nine yards. Like Prabhupada was called Prabhupada. Prabhupada was not his initiated name. That was a title that was given to him as our guru. Actually, he had to tell us to give it to him, but that was our ignorance. So they had titles. They had very, very opulent quarters, just like Prabhupada, like amazingly opulent. And, in many cases, they had more. Their quarters were nicer than Prabhupada's, and their bias pujas started being nicer than Prabhupada's. Everything started shifting, and this created this huge alienation, because then the God brothers, many of them, started feeling like this is not the movement I joined. That was Prabhupada centric. Now it's this guru centric. And so this alienation that I felt on the first day that he said on Vyasasana, it just continued. And so you had devotees who were being alienated, then you had other devotees who were saying, no, this is the way it's supposed to be, this is good. 
there were a lot of good results. A lot of people were inspired, the ones who liked them. He had a lot of power. He could do a lot of things. He had a lot of disciples. Easy for the disciples. One guru. Um, and you probably know the history. But one by one, gurus started having trouble because they had usurped their position. They were imitating Prabhupada. And Shastra says, if you imitate the great devotees, it's like drinking poison. Of the eleven, I think seven had fallen away due to, to either not being able to maintain strictly the principles, or maybe you could say not being able to maintain, in a broader sense, strictness. They just couldn't maintain their position. They had either had fallen down, breaking one of the regular principles, or come close to it, or being challenged to do it. They just couldn't maintain the position because it was not the position Prabhupada intended. He climaxed around 1986, and, and the God Brothers had formed practically a revolution. There were various revolutions going on to reform this guru reform, and there was a meeting in New Vrindavan, and I participated, and it was a, like a historical meeting at the time. And the God Brothers just spoke out and said, this is nonsense, you're imitating Prabhupada, this is wrong, you're destroying the movement, you've, pushed Prabhupada, you've eclipsed Prabhupada, you've pushed them out. Um, let, me, let me tell you something. Um, this is going to sound strange to you, but it'll help put this in perspective. In 19, it must have been 1982, I went to South Africa to, do, to raise money. I was president of Mauritius, and there was no money in Mauritius, a very poor country. At that time, South Africa was one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And I had just been living in South Africa the year before, so I knew where to go, I knew how to collect. So we could collect in a month more money than we'd make at Mauritius in a year. And we can buy so many things we need, and uh, I wanted to start a festival program. We can buy all what we need, sound system, this and that. So we went there, and this devotee is a disciple of Ramachar. And this devotee, when we get in the cars, is playing lectures of Ramachar, kirtans of Ramachar, kirtans of other devotees. And I'd never actually been in that close proximity with a disciple of the new gurus. Because for us, it was just, well, we would just listen to Prabhupada. That was like normal. We just listened to Prabhupada. That's how we grew up. That's all you listen to. And there were no other books, or very few other books. So there were no other books to read but Prabhupada's books. And this devotees, I, and I turn to this devotee, I say, do you ever listen to Prabhupada? And the devotee says, no, I don't. And she, and, and this devotee was, was shocked. Right? Like, oh, I never thought of that, or we don't do that. And that made a deep impression that there's a serious problem here. Now you might say, but Prabhu, that's the way it is in ISKCON now. That's just normal. Yeah, that's a normal, serious problem. That's how we as leaders and God brothers and even as gurus, although we're gurus and we give lectures and you listen to them and we'll even say, please listen to that lecture that I gave, it's really important. And you're thinking, why do you give a lecture every day if you want us to hear Prabhupada? Well, because this is what Prabhupada wanted us to do. But he, he didn't want us to eclipse him. He, he didn't want us to write books to eclipse his books, to give lectures to eclipse his, eclipse, eclipse his lectures. So, I'm just giving you my perspective as a Prabhupada disciple who 
who came to ISKCON in 1969, and seeing this shift, it was like, this is unprecedented. There was never a time in ISKCON history where it wasn't just Prabhupada. <laughs> his books, his kirtans, his words. And you might say, well, today, it can't be that way. And that's true, but it's gone overboard in the other direction. It has to be that way sufficiently. Like you have to listen to Prabhupada's lectures sufficiently. You have to listen to his bhajan. You have to have sufficient because he's the center. And then the other problem was that the disciples were thinking their guru was on the level of Prabhupada. They weren't really making a distinction. Liberated, if Prabhupada made the person a guru, he and they're starting to think all these 11 gurus descended. Even though they were all hippies, they didn't know that, that was just their leela. They just, you know, it was like distorted. You know, they're all descended, transcendental. And if that's the case, you could understand it. Easy to eclipse Prabhupada's. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that they were eclipsing Prabhupada. The, the focus was going away from Prabhupada. And therefore, you could say, but you can't eclipse Prabhupada. But you can't eclipse, when you shine the light on someone else, you're eclipsing. Prabhupada is eternally self-effulgent, but nobody's, but we're not seeing that so much because the light's being shown on these other people. And everyone around 1986 and the 80s was feeling this, we, we made a huge mistake in, in having these people imitate Prabhupada. And basically, it's like the whole movement is centering around these 11 people. And they yield all the power, they have all the resources, they have all the men, the money, the control. And it's like, what happened to Iskan, where Prabhupada was in the center, where resources were distributed equally, no one had specific powers, everything was managed by a GVC. Now these gurus were like, unmanageable. They had whole zones and powers of GVC, how could they control them? So then there was this whole guru reform movement and, you know, with temple presidents and then finally GBCs were interrogated, gurus were interrogated, what are you doing? And, but things have gotten better, but still to this day, the vestiges of that have not been removed, even for new devotees who become gurus. Although the newer devotees who become gurus they grew up through that, and they're more conscious not to do that. But still, within the culture, many of us are, are enough Prabhupada in the center. The devotees are just not understanding Prabhupada's mood and mission. Um, one new devotee uh, I had met in Mayapur, and she had she stayed in Mayapur because of the lockdown, and and she she I think it read Prabhupada's Gita twice and now she was studying something at the MIT or somewhere. Um, Twelfth can, you know, tenth canto commentary by Vishwanath Chakravarti Tupper, something like that. So th these kinds of things. You go into the marketplace and there are books. There are books you can read that Prabhupada told us don't read these books. You know, it's it's such a different landscape. Um, I have disciples and I'll quote a verse which every Bhakta knew in 1970, and they don't know it. I'm like, how could you not know that verse? It, it means there's a different mood now. We had a mood of learning verses. The mood changed. So this is a concern. So this was Bhakti Chiru Swami's concern, and, and this is what he said. 
this is what he felt. I want to explain this to you. He said, I feel insignificant. I'm paraphrasing. I feel like I am nothing. I'm insignificant. My only credibility is that I'm connected to Prabhupada. Then here's the important thing, the, the point he made, he said, I am not taking my disciples back to Godhead. Prabhupada is taking them back to Godhead. I am bringing them to Prabhupada. Prabhupada is doing everything, and I am bringing them to Prabhupada. And he said, I don't feel that within ISKCON, this culture, you know, this is the culture in the heart and mind of the disciples and the devotees, even maybe in some of the gurus may not feel like they think, I'm doing it, you know, by Prabhupada's mercy, but I'm doing it. You come through me, I will liberate you, I will bless you. And part, and, and so he feels that we have a culture in ISKCON that if it doesn't change, if we don't recognize that it's, it's Prabhupada's movement, it's Prabhupada's teachings, it's Prabhupada's power, we're nothing. We're all useless without that. It's all him. If that is not instilled within the heart of every single member, his fear, and rightly so, is that in the future, Prabhupada will become like a second-class citizen. He just won't be that important. He won't be that central. There'll be other people who will rise to prominence. We want gurus to rise to prominence, but not at the cost of minimizing the reality that all the potency that they have is Prabhupada's potency and that everyone should understand it. Now, the problem, the problem that I see is that when Bhaktichara Swami said this, he was accused of being a Ritvik because what he was saying was very similar to what the Ritviks are saying, that Prabhupada's being pushed to the side, he's being eclipsed by the Gurus, we lost that Prabhupada-centric culture, and so forth. So, I take that as a, as a great glorification, not as a criticism. Because the fact is, the Ritvik philosophy just went a little bit too far, that Prabhupada will be your guru, because the other gurus, they did a bad job, so let's just get rid of them. That's not Gaudiya Vaishnava Siddhanta. The Gaudiya Vaishnava Siddhanta is the other gurus will represent Prabhupada. They will bring you closer to Prabhupada. They will put the glasses on you so you see Prabhupada better. That's the mood of the guru that if I can help you get closer to Prabhupada, if I can help you deepen your relationship with Prabhupada, if I can put the glasses on you to help you see better who Prabhupada is, what he's teaching, what he wants, what his mission is, what his heart is, where he wants his movement to be, how you could become a better member of that movement and help him, if I can do that, then I've done my job as Guru. If I do anything else and make you think I am someone special, independent of Prabhupada, greatest disservice. Now, it, you might say, well, the gurus aren't doing that, but the problem is we have a culture in which it makes the disciple think when the guru says that, he's just being humble, and he doesn't really mean it. That's just, 
Oh, every guru thinks they're nothing at the feet of their, their guru. Prabhupada said he was nothing at the feet of Bhakti Siddhanta. But yes, that's true. But this is different because this is this is a fact. Prabhupada was definitely something before he met his guru. He was a Vaishnava. He was definitely something. And by the power of his guru, he was able to spread Krishna consciousness. No doubt, and no doubt Prabhupada would feel like nothing. But he wasn't nothing before he met his guru. And, and Prabhupada said, in my life, I never committed any sin. I, there was never a time when I did not think of Krishna. I'll get to your comments in, in a minute. Uh, yeah. Um, there are two books he said not to read. Govinda Lilamrita. Bhakti Siddhanta said don't read. Govinda Lilamrita is one of them. There's one more I'll remember. Um, so, but I was not born a Vaishnava. There was a time I forgot Krishna. I have not followed all the entire life. So there is a difference. And I'm probably not someone who could have come to America alone. Yeah, so there is a difference. And every guru will note that difference and every guru feels that difference. The problem is in ISKCON, because of that zonal culture that we had in 1977 when Prabhupada left, the remnants of that culture still, the fragrance of that, or they say the odor of that culture is still permeates to some subtle degree ISKCON. And it's become a challenge for gurus to communicate that we are nothing and Prabhupada is everything and we're just trying to help you get to Prabhupada in an environment where the guru position is so dominant. Now, here's where the problem lies and, and ISKCON has been trying to educate devotees in this area and it's been really challenging. And it's the area of Siksha Guru versus Diksha Guru. Because in Gaudiya Vaishnav history, all emphasis was not given on Diksha. Emphasis was given on Guru. And Guru could mean Siksha Guru. Diksha Guru could mean Bhartma Pradarshaka Guru. So, in ISKCON, as we see... Okay, let's go back to history, right? This is a real story in my life. I'm working with a disciple of Ramachar. We're working very closely. He's very close with me. He respects me, um, so maybe at that time I might have been a devotee um, 10, 15 years, and he's a new devotee. So there's some difference, you know, in what I can teach him. He respects that. At that time, we as God brothers were challenging the authority of these gurus. And there was a lot of rhetoric going on for those who were challenging you know, we, we were challenging out of sincerity, out of fear that the movement would be destroyed or corrupted or in some way fall into disarray. And many of us were called black snakes in order for the guru to protect his disciples. Um, Ramanath Prabhu, um, that's incorrect and I'd appreciate that you don't make any uh, comments against Bhakti Chaurasvami, it's inappropriate. And um, there are Govindam Lila Rita and one other book, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta said. Um, 
he asked, Srila Bhaktisanta asked, can I publish these books? And Bhaktivinoda Thakur, you can publish for yourself, because no one can understand and read them. So, um, it's not a crime to read others' books. Um, it's not a crime to read others' books, but one has to be qualified. And in discussions, when they talked about this with Prabhupada, and they said, Prabhupada, did you say we shouldn't read other books? And Prabhupada said, no, I never said that. You should read them. And then another devotee said, but, but we should read your books first. Um, and, and Prabhupada said, yes. You know, I'm writing so many books, you read them. So yes, it's not a crime to read other books. The crime is you haven't read Prabhupada's books over and over and over again, and then you read other books, because then you may misunderstand them if you can't see them through um, the lens that Prabhupada is given. So that's the, that was the concern. Ujvila Nilamani and Govinda Lilamrita. Those two books. Bhaktisiddhanta wanted to print, and Bhaktivinoda said, print one for yourself. One of Bhaktisiddhanta's senior most disciples was asked about those books. Talking about them, few sentences, and he said, I can't say more because I've never read them. If anyone was qualified to read them, it would be him, not us. And he did not read them because he was Bhaktisiddhanta, did not allow anyone to read them. So that's just for the history. So, um, where, where did I leave off? I got too excited about your comments. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, so there was a you know this this concern that Maharaj had is that the remnants the odor from the zonal acharya days where it was predominance of one guru who was thought to be like amazingly transcendental and everything for the disciples and now the new Prabhupada kind of he felt that the remnants were were still there and so. Oh yeah, so we're on the Siksha Diksha thing. So Iskon has tried through the Guru Disciple, the Disciple Course. Um, Sri Ram Swami has wrote a book on Siksha. Bhakti Chara Swami has spoken about this. I think all the Gurus have spoken about it. We are having a really difficult time educating devotees in Iskon that Siksha Guru is non different from Diksha. Diksha is not the only one prominent Guru. Everything is Diksha. But Siksha is of equal importance. And in some cases, your Siksha Guru may be more important. And Prabhupada is your Siksha Guru, and you can have many Siksha Gurus. And you may have an even deeper relationship with your Siksha Guru than your Diksha Guru. And in, in many times, in Gaudiya Vaishnava history, you would get Diksha, you would get your mantras, and your Guru would say, okay, take training from this person. And you would be trained by another person, and that relationship with that other person was as close or closer than the relationship with your Diksha Guru. So in ISKCON, everything centered around Diksha. And once you become a Diksha Guru, you're like God. Now, there's a problem. And the problem is when you read the Shastra, it glorifies the position of Guru as good as God, etc., etc. So naturally, disciples will worship their Guru that way. But it never says Diksha Guru. It says Guru which means Siksha Guru, also. So, I want all my disciples to become Guru, also means Siksha Guru. 
you know, see the Guru as good as God. Good as God means he's representing God, he's teaching what God is saying. See that his teachings are coming from God. That's Siksha Guru also. Honor your Gurus. Siksha Gurus also. So, this devotee had the story where we were, we're, become, we're being called black snakes, right? So, I started pointing out some defects in what this Guru was doing. And it was at a point when this Guru was actually, it wasn't just a philosophical usurp Prabhupada's position, he was actually crumbling spiritually. And this devotee said to me, he said, you're so dear to me, if my Guru criticizes you, I'll have to reject him. Or I, I, or I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. It's because he saw me as a Siksha Guru. And so then there was this, this Guru up here dominating, and we are training his disciples. We're bringing new people. Then they go to the Diksha Guru. The Diksha Guru prompt predominates, and we are like nobody now. We're the ones who, you know, we fed you your breast, we breastfed you in Krishna consciousness, and now you've been adopted by your Diksha Guru, and you are you know, were neglected. But in his case, he didn't see it that way, fortunately. So that was a big concern. Um, that was a big concern that those who were actually training and making devotees were get, then being minimized or put in a secondary position. Or um, sometimes this happens where Someone wants to accept me as their guru, and later on they change their mind, which happens, it's fine. It's not the fault of the disciple or the guru. And they, and they say, can I accept so-and-so? Of course. And it's actually GBC resolution. You can't tell someone not to, unless you think, you know, they took LSD yesterday, and that's, where they, that's why they made that decision, or someone had a gun at their head and said, you have to take from this guru. If there was some awkward situation, you might say, let's talk about it. Otherwise, you'd say, fine. But the problem is, this relationship, let's say in this example that they had with me, it may be for a year, and we may be working together, and I may have helped them. And then all of a sudden, they choose so-and-so, they want to take diksha from so-and-so, for whatever reason. That's not the point of the discussion. But then the relationship with me, it's like it doesn't exist anymore. It's like it's gone. That's wrong. I mean, I can't control that. I'm not saying it's wrong because of me. It's wrong with anyone. That if you have that relationship, then why would you give it up just because you want to take diction from someone else? Because this person was also your guru. So when you change your mind to take initiation, it doesn't mean, oh, well, let's take that guru and we'll just, you know, we'll put him in the dustbin. You know, we don't need him. These kinds of things. And not recognizing that this six-year guru of yours because he doesn't carry a danda and have a big position, you think, well, I'll take initiation from someone else. I know, I have godbrothers who I, I have some godbrothers who I think are some of the most amazing devotees and they're Diksha Gurus. Me personally, I, I love them dearly. I think they're some of the most insightful devotees and some of the most well-qualified devotees to be Gurus and they hardly have any disciples because they don't have a profile. They felt like a handful of disciples, and it's like, this shows that there is a little problem here. You know, it's a propaganda marketing branding issue done inadvertently, and it's, it's, it's built in the culture. You have a lot of followers, you're a sannyasi, you have a zone, 
it's like built, you're going to, you know, automatically, you're going to be big. You're going to have a lot of disciples. It's just going to happen, you know. And, you know, everyone's going to start, you know, and all your disciples are going to start saying, well, why don't you take from Guru Maharaj? Because everybody else is. And, and so you'll see, there are parts of the world where 90% of the people are the disciple of one guru. And so these are the kinds of things that Maharaj is looking at and thinking, if this doesn't stop, if we don't change this culture, Iskon will not, it will not make it because we'll lose Prabhupada. And so his point is, Iskon is Prabhupada. Iskon, Prabhupada's taking everyone back to Godhead. It's Prabhupada's teachings that are purifying us. It's Prabhupada's everything. And as much as we can latch onto that, or as much as leaders we can represent that to our followers, to that degree we're successful because we transparently represent a Prabhupada. I've given you a Prabhupada, he will purify you, not me. He will purify you. And anything that I can do, and any purification you feel you're getting from me, it's just I'm giving you what he gave. It's not coming from me. He said, once we see that, then all the disciples, when they're getting mercy from their guru, they're realizing he's giving me Prabhupada's mercy, and they realize he's strengthening my connection. Now, to Prabhupada. Now, in Sureshwar Prabhu's Founder Acharya series, he makes the point that your foundational relationship is with Prabhupada. That's where it starts, and your guru will help strengthen that relationship. It's not the other way around. Your foundational relationship is with your guru, and he'll help you strengthen it. You're, yeah, he will help you strengthen it, but your foundational relationship is with Prabhupada, and your guru will help, help foster that relationship. That's a fundamental principle of his, of his um, course, and that's how every guru feels, or at least how every guru should feel, and that's how every sikshya guru should feel, and that's how every preacher in this country should feel. And that's how every devotee should feel. So, what the GBC had decided years ago was that nobody who comes to ISKCON should choose anyone to be their Diksha Guru for six months. And those first six months, develop your relationship with Prabhupada. Now, you may be attached to a Guru, okay, he can be your six-year Guru, but for those first six months, focus on Prabhupada as this is your Guru, develop that relationship. And then choose a guru who can help you develop that relationship. Not you just choose a guru because he's charismatic or you, you like the way he chants or you like the way he tells stories or whatever. And I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not offending anybody. Um, all our gurus are glorious. All our gurus are amazingly empowered. But the point is, you want to accept someone as a guru because you've connected to Prabhupada and you see this guru represents Prabhupada so transparently to you and connects you so deeply to Prabhupada. You want to be connected with him so you can be connected with Prabhupada. That's the culture we want to create. And I think you will realize that even though you may feel that way, not everybody feels that way. And that was Maharaj's, Maharaj's concern. And one God brother revealed to me that the day that Maharaj was leaving to come back to America to do this initiation and work on his project of cow protection, he called this god brother who was um, involved in working within ISKCON 
to make changes on this level, and he called him and he expressed that. That's what's burdening his heart. So I think this is very significant that when Bhakti Swami was coming to America, this thing was still burdening his heart. When he's leaving his body, this is what was burdening his heart, that Prabhupada's going to become a second-class citizen in ISKCON, or has, has already become to some degree, and, and unless we change, we don't have a future. This is what was in his heart. And so every time you, you hear him talk about keep Prabhupada in the center, the position of Diksha, Siksha, and all that, that's where it's coming from, this, this huge concern. So now, when a great devotee leaves and we want to honor him, we're honoring him by talking about him, but I think the greatest thing we can do to honor him is create this culture in Iskon, because that's what he wants and that's what he's living for. So, you know, not just his disciples, but everybody, everyone in ISKCON, if you want to honor Bhakti Chiroswami, you want to help create this culture. And um, I would appreciate it if you all share this video, this class, as widely as possible, because I just want as many devotees as possible to know what was in his heart. And this was definitely in his heart. So now... I'm going to go back and look at your comments. At least some I saw I felt were uh, maybe not appropriate. So um, just give me a minute because now your comments are going to reflect on things I've said uh, at the beginning of the class. So um, or I, I guess this would serve as a bit of a summary in a sense or your questions. So... Vridhananda uh, said that Bhaktisar Swami was the son that Srila Prabhupada never had. Beautiful, beautiful. For, for Bhaktisar Swami, taking care of Iskan was like taking care of Srila Prabhupada's body. For him, it was non-different. Prabhupada said, Iskan is my body. Exactly. Perfect. Did I say that or someone else said that? <laughs> Bhakti Chandrasamy said, if you love Prabhupada, you will work to make Iskand better. Yeah. So he, as I was saying, this point is so important because people are leaving Iskand even in the name of loving Prabhupada. How can I stay in a movement which doesn't represent Prabhupada's heart? And I, I totally understand that philosophy. I'm in a movement, it's changed, it's not what it was when Prabhupada was here. How can I be part of that? Like sometimes when I hear of some, something that goes on in ISKCON that shouldn't have gone on, I think it's so hard to be part of a movement that doesn't, in every sphere, on every level, every day, every devotee, live to be examples of what Prabhupada taught. But as you know, Prabhupada said, don't leave, but stay inside and make it better. So that was Maharaj's point, you know. Maharaj may be complaining or explaining what's wrong, but there was never an intention that, well, let's go out and make a better movement. It was always the intention of, no, we have to correct what's wrong. Because if we go out and make a better movement, it doesn't correct this kind. Okay, so you and your devotees, you don't have those problems. You've rectified the situation, and so you, few hundred of you, everything's fine. But what about the hundreds and thousands or millions of people now and in the future that are going to come to ISKCON? What you did, it doesn't do anything. 
you leave ISKCON, you have a nice life. You say, you know, it's beyond my integrity to be part of a movement who does this and that. No, you should say, it's beyond my integrity to leave a movement who does this and that without trying to help it. That's what you should say. Because that's what Prabhupada would expect of you. So you have to understand when you say things, is it, would Prabhupada agree with you? And with, the mind can rationalize anything, but would Prabhupada agree with you when you say, I'm leaving ISKCON because it lacks integrity? I would bet my life right now that he would never agree with that. There's no question in my mind he would ever agree with that. Would he let you do it? Yes, if that's what you had to do. Would he agree with it? No. Would he agree with that rationale? No. Would he want it? No. Would he condemn you for it? No. Would he let you continue devotional service and preach? Yes, if that's what you need to do. If you asked him, is that what I should do? He would say no. You may look back and say, well, my leaving was a good decision. I did, I did so many great things. Maybe. But I don't think it would, it would be as great as if you would have stayed. It would have been more austere, more difficult. But, you know, you can't look at something material. If your spiritual master wants you to do something, and you say, well, I could, if I didn't follow that order, I could do something better, you know, you have to discuss that with him. You can't just make that conclusion so easily. It, it may be true in some cases, and you, you would need to discuss that with a lot of senior devotees to verify that. But you can't just assume that, because there's a problem, and you leave to avoid the problem, and you can create something better outside the problem, that that's actually what Prabhupada wants you to do. Uh, so that's a very, very important point for us to take home. There's many important points to take home. Maharaj was like the loving brother. Yeah, we told those stories. Hmm. Thank you for giving us a historical context. It feels to me personally to be vital information. It's important to look back. At, you know, yeah. um, one thing I also want to say is that the way culture works is that when things are established in a culture, it's very difficult to change them, even when everybody knows it's wrong. And when you ask, why are you doing this? And they say, well, it's always the way we've done it. And we say, yeah, but it's, it's not right. And people say, yeah, I know, but not everybody knows that. And there's not enough people trying to change it for it to change. So if you, in your own heart, in your own life, preach what we're discussing here, at least that will do something to change the culture, because you're all part of that culture. <clears throat> right? Kamini uh, says, I believe it was in the 80s that the Zurich uh, temple had about six or so asanas, one for each son of the room. I hear from my husband who survived those fanatical years. Oh, that was nothing. They would have meetings in LA, the whole GBC. The whole temple room was filled with asanas. They'd be building asanas for weeks in advance before the meetings. And you know what the meetings, the emergency meetings were about? The fall down of one of the gurus. This was very, like, I lived in L.A. Those, that's where the meetings happened. It was a horrible time. And when you look back and, and, and you see the problems, you'll see so many problems were because we didn't get the guru thing right. And so many problems will continue to exist if we don't get the growth thing right. Now, 
One of our God brothers left ISKCON, started his own movement, very successful all over the world, and now he's had trouble. And that whole movement is collapsing. People are losing faith. Whereas at least in ISKCON, if, if one devotee collapses, the whole organization doesn't collapse. Prabhupada understood that. But if it's a one-man organization and that man collapses, everything comes. Yeah, we've seen collapse of senior people and naturally many of their disciples collapsed. And all glories to those who didn't collapse. But the whole movement is still here. Damaged in his zone, no doubt. No question. But at least the movement still, still exists and there's hope that we can learn from mistakes and go further. Thank you for protecting us through your guidance and information so we do not fall into similar errors and for continuing the mission of Prabhupada so sincerely. If, if, for example, my disciples, I see my disciples represent Prabhupada's words and mission and feel that deep connection with Prabhupada, I know that after I leave, they will be strong. But if they don't develop that, then after I leave, they'll think, oh, I lost my Guru Maharaj, everything is left, because everything was depending on me. Prabhupada is your stability. Everyone who's made it in ISKCON after their Guru left will tell you they made it because of their connection with Prabhupada. And those who didn't have a strong connection with Prabhupada had a very difficult time. And they had to develop that connection. Otherwise, they would sink. And if they didn't have that connection, they couldn't make it. So... That's where Maharaj sees this instability. And, and, and I was thinking, right before, a few days before Maharaj left, feeling like this could happen, I began thinking about how devotees are going to continue when their gurus leave. Because all the gurus are going to leave within the next 20 years, maybe within the next five. You know, many of them will go. We don't know, but now's the time. So how are you all going to continue? And... You're going to continue because you have this deep connection with Prabhupada. And you will realize, my Guru Maharaj was connecting me with Prabhupada. Everything he was saying was what Prabhupada was saying. And now when I hear Prabhupada, I hear my Guru Maharaj, I see it's the same. And I feel connected to Prabhupada through my Guru Maharaj. I feel connected to my Guru Maharaj through Prabhupada. And you'll be stable. Otherwise, it can be very difficult to continue after your guru leaves, if your guru has consumed your life, that that he has he has overshadowed Prabhupada in your life to such a degree that when he's not there, you can't connect to Prabhupada. Then what are you going to connect to? So this is very very important for all of you, because you all have gurus or will have gurus, and your guru can't live forever, and most of you are younger than your gurus, so he's probably going to leave before you, and so. Your guru's big concern, even more than now, is what's going to happen after he leaves? And are you all going to leave ISKCON? Are you all going to, you know, lose, let Maya just take you over and your faith will, you know, because you were so dependent on your guru and, and you weren't reading enough and hearing enough from Prabhupada that you made that deep connection, that that's your stable force. And even though your guru's not there to give lectures every day and chastise you, you, you feel him and Prabhupada together, their instructions are together, 
You always have Prabhupada's shelter. It's always present tense. Prabhupada never left. Those instructions are always real. Then you go on. But without that, you're going to have a really difficult time. And every guru is obviously concerned about that. There are other books that Srila Prabhupada told us not to read. Those are the two. Govinda Lila Amrita and Ujjvala Mani. Those are the ones that Bhaktivinoda said only Srila Bhakti Siddhanta is um, qualified to read and no one in Gaudiamat ever read those books because it was prohibited. That was too high. You said that Bhakti Chira Swamaraj was stressing the importance of staying part of this and recently a friend called me. She is not a long time devotee, maybe seven years. She's initiated. She told me that she has faith in oops, faith in the process, but she lost faith in the institution. She said she is disappointed how ISKCON is managed. My friend is a businesswoman. She's running a business, hiring a few hundreds of people. She has a degree in management. And she wanted to help, giving advice as how to improve management. And, help, and her help was rejected. How to convince someone to stay in ISKCON. I'll take her help. <laughs> Call her up. Tell her I need her help. She can manage everything I'm doing. <laughs> um, um, I just had a conversation with one of my disciples. Well, not a conversation. It was a voice notes exchanged on WhatsApp. And she told me, and I didn't know this, that she has a degree in social psychology in, in creating cultures within organizations. So I said, and she's thinking of doing a PhD, and I said, I think you need to do a PhD because you're a young devotee, you're a woman, and without a PhD in your title, you may not be taken seriously yet. What can I say? It's just a reality we have to deal with it. And I said, I said once you have that PhD, you're going to be called to educate devotees in the movement 50 years about social psychology and creating cult proper cultures and visions and missions because she studied that and she's going to know more about it than anybody in this country. So she's the most qualified to teach it. So I would tell that devotee that don't give up. Um, there are places in this that would love her input and the GBC college may also want her to teach and you know I can maybe help connect her with that if she's interested but I'd love if she helps me and tell her that ISKCON is an evolving organization and it's not homogenous so what may be a problem in one area may not be a problem where you may not be wanted in one area or needed you may be wanted or needed in another area and with her skills um, I, I could guarantee her with her skills there are places where people would love to have her and maybe there's something I could do to find those places. So, for those of us who are grand disciples of Srila Prabhupada, how should we behave with respect to prioritizing lectures, books of Srila Prabhupada, against those of his esteemed disciples? Very good question. Well, books like Radha Swami Girashami, Bhaktivedanta to be more relatable and inspirational. A lot of the books that you're going to read by Prabhupada's disciples are filled with Prabhupada Kata. So it's not exactly like reading a book by Prabhupada's disciples, so to speak, as as like you're not reading Prabhupada's books. It's some of like especially Satsuritmash's books. 
reading his many of his books were like every second, third paragraph, there's a quote from Prabhupada. So it's basically like hearing a class. So, so that's one thing to note. That I, and hearing about Prabhupada's life is extremely important. And I think we should read every book about Prabhupada's life. A lot of the other books like are can be more inspirational, like you read them for inspiration. I like reading so-and-so's book, it inspires me. But the idea is the foundation should be Prabhupada's books. That's what you should be reading mostly. And everyone wants to hear lectures of their guru and other devotees, and there's so many amazing lectures. But don't hear it at the expense of never hearing Prabhupada's lectures. At least, you know, when someone says, I listen, you know, they say to me, I listen to your lectures every day, because I give class every day, or I listen to your class every day. So I say, at least, at least listen to one class. Don't, of Prabhupada, don't just push it out, you know. And I read so many other people's books, but Prabhupada's books more. It has to be more. You have to get that foundation. Because because everything that Prabhupada wanted us to know, he put in his books. And if you don't read his books, you'll never really understand Prabhupada's heart. And a lot of times, when we're having classes, questions are asked to me, and I don't say this in my answer, but when I'm looking at the question, I'm thinking, this devotee is not reading Prabhupada's books. If they were, they wouldn't have that question. They wouldn't have that misunderstanding. They wouldn't have that feeling. They would know this is not... This has been answered in Prabhupada's books. This is not the way Prabhupada explains these things. This is not how he looks at it. It's not how he feels about it. So it's an indication, and it's a very bad indication, that we're not reading his books. We, we have a movement which is supposed to be Prabhupada-centric, and we're not even reading the books where everything he wanted us to know is in his books. Every answer to your problems is in his books. Every siddhanta that he wants you to know is in his books. His mood is in his books. And if we don't read them, how can we have an iskon? Because then it's not centered on Prabhupada, it's centered on someone else. Yes, you should be dedicated to your guru. Yes, you should work with him. But understand, he's working to spread Prabhupada's mission. You're helping him spread Prabhupada's mission. You are as connected to Prabhupada as he is. Your connection is through him, but at the same time, it's not any less. And before you're initiated, Yes, you're connected to Prabhupada, you're reading his books. That's your connection. It doesn't really have to go through anybody. When you're initiated, technically, etiquette-wise, that's how you see it. But when you first come, you're getting Prabhupada through everybody, and your direct connection is you're reading his books. What could be more direct than that? One time Prabhupada said something amazing. He said, Prabhupada, people have your books in these countries you're never going to go to. How will they get initiated? He said, reading my books is their initiation. What does he mean? He meant initiation into knowledge. That's the real initiation. The real diksha is knowledge. Your, your divya jnanam is what happens at initiation, transference of knowledge. I'm transferring it through these books. You're getting initiated in a sense. We've had, we have some devotees in this movement who have known Prabhupada since they were kids. And they're like very reluctant to take diksha because they feel like they're going to lose that relationship with Prabhupada. They feel like Prabhupada was always my guru. How could I accept anyone else? It's like being unchaste. But no, it doesn't have to be that way that you're going to lose Prabhupada. It has, you will gain him. You have to be very careful with a sectarian mentality. So that, that is the... 
That is a problem. I've been in some countries and I'll come and I'll give a lecture and I'll, you know, the country has like 4,000 devotees and I'll give a lecture or do the seminar and there's like 150. You know, like there's 4,000 devotees here and there's only 150. And it's like, why? So, you know, well, those are like the 150 that like you. And when so-and-so Maharaj comes, then the 150 that like him come. And then when so-and-so, like Bhakti Chirasana comes, then the 500 that like him, because he's more popular. Then the 500 that like him come. Well, what about the other 3,500? So we see this. And, and we also see the phenomena that we don't see devotees until their spiritual master comes. He comes, he does programs, we see them, he goes, we don't see them. Uh, we see the phenomena that a devotee will not cooperate unless their guru asks them, then they'll cooperate. These are the kinds of things that were tearing Bhakti Swami's heart apart. Seeing this, this is sectarianism, this is materialism, this is Kanishta. And for us as gurus, it's like indirectly we're causing this. So I come, all these people come to hear me, but they're the only, but they're my disciples or the ones who want to be disciples or the ones who are Siksha disciples or the ones who like the way I preach. And then the other just general devotees who would normally come or should come to any program don't because, well, that's just the Mahatma program with his followers. That, that is like very painful for me to feel that I'm like creating a cult of sorts. And so human psychology creates that kind of thing and we have to be very careful to prevent that from happening. We should respect all Prabhupada's disciples. They gave up everything to spread this movement and knowledge. Nobody should cast anyone aside yeah, because that's how Prabhupada felt. And I wanted to say something else. That Bhakti Swami is very dear to Prabhupada. And occasionally I've seen people find fault with him for whatever reason, as everybody, every leader tends to have someone or more than someone that likes to find fault with him. Bhakti Charaswami was so dear to Prabhupada, so close to Prabhupada, that if you find fault with him, you're tearing Prabhupada's heart apart. Please understand that this person was very, very dear to Prabhupada, and anything you say negative is direct, directly tearing Prabhupada's heart. This was one of Prabhupada's most beloved sons. You criticize Prabhupada's son? And you want to get Prabhupada's mercy in the name of being chaste to Prabhupada? You criticize a dear son? That's insanity. Don't dare to tread that ground. You will destroy yourself. In the name of service to Prabhupada, so many of Prabhupada's dear disciples are being criticized by people who do not understand this principle that if someone is dear to Prabhupada, and you're dear to that person, and you glorify that person, you become dear to Prabhupada, you criticize that person, you're, you're losing your relationship with but you're harming, you're offending Prabhupada. People often, because of their envy, do not have the common sense to understand that. It is so obvious. It is so obvious that he was dear to Prabhupada, practically like, like nobody else. And to offend him is like, suicide for your spiritual life. And if you ever offended him, ask for, ask in your heart for him to accept your apologies. Uh, I've seen a photo with a huge, uh, uh, a huge photo of Prabhupada disciple promoting a class or conference 
First kind of devotees where they don't mention Prabhupada, founder Acharya, or photo. This is in disciple course. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so um, we want to be we want to be conscious in everything we're doing that we're representatives of Prabhupada. Prabhupada is there. We're representing him. Everything we teach, we use his examples. We use what he said. We refer to his life. <coughs> and, and if you look at the classes I give, you will notice that most of the time, well, sometimes, but most of the time, I'm not dealing with very esoteric subjects. I'm not spending, giving a lot of classes on other books, but I'm spending a lot of time going over basics, talking a lot about what Prabhupada did, what he said, because I want to ingrain within all my listeners Prabhupada's mood and his mission. Get that ingrained, and when that's ingrained, yes, we can build on that with so many. The philosophy is unlimited, and the deeper we go, the better. But until you have that foundation, it's dangerous to build upon that without a foundation in Prabhupada, because then we'll end up with a movement that's not Prabhupada-centric. And it can happen very slowly and gradually. In a few hundred years, he's just sidelined, and people will forget that Prabhupada was ever in the center, and now it's all like three big acharyas that are running ISKCON. And everyone will expect, well, it'll always be three big acharyas, because it's been that way for the last 300 years, and no one will even figure out how it got there, and how Prabhupada got sidelined. That's what we're, what we're afraid of. Yeah, please share this video, especially with the disciples of Bhakti Swami, because they're the first ones who are going to carry this mission, uh, carry his heart. That's, that's their the first duty of the disciples, carry the heart. So share, please share this broadly. Um, it's important. Yeah, Kamaniya was saying, she was noting my direct quotes, and it's so funny, I was reading them thinking, did I say that? That's, that I was thinking someone else said it. The nature of preaching is sometimes you don't always realize what you're saying. This is a very sobering class. My fear now is Bhakti Swami is so widely loved and respected in the movement. Who will carry that torch now to spearhead a movement to ensure... The Srila Prabhupada does not become sidelined. It feels like a scary... Well, so I can't reveal everything, but what you're expressing now is in the hearts of a lot of leaders who are at this moment in real time talking about this, um, who are already talking about it, but they're talking about it now because of his leaving, because they all know that this is what was in his heart, and this is... And we're taking his departure as actually the biggest shot in the back to make this happen now because we're afraid if it doesn't happen now we're we're going to be in trouble and and we realize it's going to take time but there are devotees who are focusing on this and there are devotees who are bringing this up to the gbc and forcing this as the most important issue i was talking to a, another god brother and we, uh, he lives in China, and I work in China, and there's going to be a meeting uh, in China to discuss preaching. And I said, um, we have to discuss this. This is, this is the point. I gave class yesterday on creating culture, creating community. First thing I said was, connect everyone to Prabhupada. So this has to be the foundation of every project, everything we're doing, Prabhupada-centric. Prabhupada is there. Because... 
You know, you read these stories about Prabhupada came and he changed people's hearts like that. And his books changed people's hearts and his presence. And if you can represent him in your being, being an example, then it's like Prabhupada's there for that person. And so that's, as long as we understand, that's where our Shakti comes from. And we never forget that and we always honor, this is my spiritual master, this is my, even you're talking to brand new people, this is what my spiritual master did for me, this is how he affected me. And when you say spiritual master, you, you're talking about Prabhupada. This is what I learned from him. This is what I want to share. They don't know who he is. It's not like some taboo thing. You can't talk about your guru. You know, they don't know he said we didn't go to the moon. You're not talking about that. You're talking about what he said to you that you want to share with them that will affect them. And you want to directly know this is where it came from, this person. Have the picture. Show them the picture. A lot of people, when they see Prabhupada's picture, they just go, wow. I feel so amazing looking at that picture. We'll definitely share this in the hopes for Bhakti Swami's message to reach uh, all. Yes. Um, I find that reading the books about Srila Prabhupada that are written by disciples helps to strengthen my connection. Definitely. I recommend every book about Prabhupada you should read because then you will, you will really connect with what Iskand is when you read those books. Uh, one of the problems that with Guru Nat Iskon, who is in serious problems, is very popular in South America and over there. We all are Hare Krishna, so for preaching reputations. Oh, she's saying um, that Guru that I said had problems is in South America, and so people just see him, the public sees him as a Hare Krishna. They, they don't know there's different movements. And said so it's created a huge problem. For Iskand, and uh, yeah, there, there, there are many problems. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel safe if I started my own movement, because if I, if I leave this, not if I, when I leave this world, I'm leaving my disciples in the hands of so many God brothers and so many senior devotees in a whole movement, a whole organization. So I know they'll be taken care of. But if it's just me and my few hundred disciples in my organization on their own, who knows what will happen? Of course, we know what will happen. Not good. Um, my Guru Maharaj Kadamba Kanana Swami is already preparing us for that, trying to make the next generation yeah, with solid foundations and strong faith and problem. Yesterday, during... During initiation, the instruction that he gave us was to read Srimad Bhagavatam. Yeah. This is the mood of all the leaders. And as I was saying, it's like the culture is going a little bit against that, and we always have to be talking about it. Thank him for me when you see him next for saying that at the initiation. That's so important. Isn't there a samadhi in Vrindavan where some of Rupa Goswami's books are buried? Is there too high for anybody? I don't know. I haven't heard that. Sounds like the Vatican. Let's break in the Vatican and get those books. Let's get those books. <laughs> um, I find a disciple, the best disciple understands the heart of the guru, understands what the guru wants. Like the Bhakti Charaswami found Prabhupada's poetry, Gita Gan, Bengali poetry, Bhagavad Gita, Prabhupada, and he published it. 
and he gave it to Prabhupada after he published Prabhupada was like beaming. He just knew this would please Prabhupada. You want to know the heart of the Guru, you want to know what makes him happy. And if we don't connect with Prabhupada's books, if we don't read his biographies, we, we're not going to know well what is his heart. And then how can we represent ISKCON in the future, it won't be the ISKCON that Prabhupada established, it'll be the ISKCON that I'm conceiving it to be because I don't understand what Prabhupada wanted, what he needed. Now, obviously there's a lot of things that take introspection, discussion, clarification, even the GBC is not clear on. But the point is, we want to be as clear about what Prabhupada wanted as possible. And as you become a leader, if you're not clear, you're doing a disservice because you're, you'll be not giving a clear message to your followers and they won't be able to give a clear message to their followers. So, being a part of ISKCON, it's our obligation to understand Prabhupada, understand what he taught. Just like, like the other day I was reading some things Prabhupada said uh, about do we come from Vaikuntha, where do we come from? And the discussion is so interesting because although it seems like he says we're with Krishna, then, then another place he says, nobody falls from Vaikuntha, you can't fall from Prema. And then he said, yeah, you're with Krishna, there's nothing but Krishna, how could you not be with Krishna? So I'm reading this going, okay. Our general discussion was, yeah, we fell from Vaikuntha, that's what it seems like Prabhupada's saying. As you read it more, you, hmm, not exactly, it's not so straightforward. You go back, Bhakti Siddhanta, hmm, it doesn't seem like he's saying the same thing. So sometimes these things take take time. You have to study. What does it mean? You discuss with God. But does, what did Prabhupada mean? Did we fall? Did we not? Did he mean both? Did he mean we came from Brahm? You know, like like what you may think was so cut and dry when you're a young devotee, you go back and you read and you go, I thought I understood that, but now I'm reading that Prabhupada said this and that. Um, and now we're having a discussion. You know, there's this discussion about editing Prabhupada's books, and you know, and Jai Dwaita Swami told me that Prabhupada had said something, I think, about black people, and Hari Riva said that we shouldn't leave that in the book, and Prabhupada said, take it out. So Prabhupada actually authorized something to be taken out of his books. Can we do that now? I don't know. No, that would be heresy. Should we footnote it? But what if what's in his books will will close down our movement in the country? Do we not put it in the book in that language? Do we take it off the internet in English? Like what? These are like big questions. You really have to understand what is in Prabhupada's heart. How much did he want us to edit? Where did he want us to stop? Are we authorized to tamper with that? To what extent? You know, Prabhupada said, if there's nothing to eat, eat meat. Wow. Now we have that. We have that. What does that mean? How do you interpret? How do you want? You discuss that with your Godbrand. What does that mean? I'm going to this place to preach. I won't be able to have sadhana there. I won't be able to do this. I'll get shot if I'm chanting in public. Okay, go there for a week. Don't chant any rounds. Really? Can I do that? Okay, you know, these are the kinds of things we want to understand. What is the mood? What, what is the heart of Prabhupada? Would he allow these things? Say, no, he would never allow that. You have to chant in silence. Just chant in your mind. You know, these kinds of discussions. As followers of, uh, being in ISKCON, as followers of Prabhupada, we need to understand the subtleties of what's in Prabhupada's heart, how he would make decisions, what he would do. 
because we're going to confront so many situations that Prabhupada did not deal with. And all we have is examples of what he did deal with and intelligence. We have to use our intelligence to understand how am I going to apply that. Right now, I have this, I'm so conflicted about a reality that most devotees who are initiated, or many, don't chant 16 rounds. They chant four, they chant eight. They don't follow all four principles. They follow three and a half, or two, or three. And we keep initiating more devotees. And then, you know, you talk to your disciples, oh, Guru Maharaj, I haven't been chanting my rounds lately, or I'm only chanting four, eight. And that like, starts to become more and more common. How many have stopped chanting? How many are chanting eight? When you look at the figures, large numbers. How many are chan How many are full practicing the four regular principles perfectly? Ten percent out of a hundred. Uh, only ten percent of initiated devotees. So these are questions. If Prabhupada knew that now, what would he say? What would he do? Would he tell us don't initiate them till they're sixty years old? Would he say okay? Let them take a vow to chant four rounds, but tell them 16 is the goal. Let them take a chant to keep sex and marriage, but tell them the goal is, is only for... You know, what would he say? These are like questions that are going to continually come up. And we need to know Prabhupada's heart. I'm not saying Prabhupada would say that, but I'm saying these questions come We need to know his heart. We need to know his books. We need to know his example. We need to know his strategies. We need to know how his intelligence works to be able to answer these questions, because these are real questions. And if this generation doesn't answer these questions, we're leaving it for the next generation, who are probably going to be less, maybe less equipped. I mean, this may sound offensive, but I think they're going to be more handicapped to understand this than our generation, who was with Prabhupada. So I've been encouraging devotees of any position or power. I'm saying, you, we have to ask these questions and establish Siddhanta, so we don't put this burden on the next generation to try to figure out, because there's a lot of difficult questions. And it's, it's our job, all of us, because you're all, like I say, if you stay in ISKCON long enough, you're going to be a leader. Someone's going to look up to you. They're going to ask you these questions. Well, Prabhu, you know, so many devotees are not following their vows, and, you know, doesn't the guru knows that, but still he's, he's initiating them, and he knows they're lying, and then we're encouraging people to lie, and why are we doing that, and shouldn't we wait 25 years before... What do you say? How are you going to answer that? And you're going to say, actually, I don't chant my runs either. <laughs> it's not going to work. We have to have answers. We have to have systems. Um, Gurnison says, you've always grounded our faith in Prabhupada. Always kept him in the center. Thank you. Actually, you feel close to Well, it's nice to know I've done that. And Prabhupada's birth... Sanitary celebration, Bhakti Swami dedicated all his books, which he had translated Megali to Prabhupada. So deep with connection, yeah. You know, he translated all of Prabhupada's books into Bengali. How many books did he write? I think one. <laughs> you know, it's like I've written three books, and I started, and I have more books, and I started thinking. Okay, I write a book, it takes three to four to five hours for you to read it, and I think, that's three to four or five hours I took you away from reading Prabhupada's books. Should I do it? Of course, there's lots of quotes from Prabhupada. And of course, devotees have said it's helped me understand Prabhupada. 
But still, in the back of my mind, I think, well, that's another book to take you away from reading Prabhupada's book. It's, you know, it's these things we have to consider. Um, Tamal Krishnamaya used to tell us if we don't read Prabhupada's books, you won't be able to control the unruly mind. Yeah, it's true. You won't be able to be Krishna conscious. I was in a cell group that emphasized what their Guru Maharaj said and would not give importance to what Prabhupada said. Yeah, that's the problem. When I voiced that through the Prophet as a sin, I was brushed off. That's the problem. When I said this is against GVC rules, to them to think, now they emphasize. Uh, when I said this is against GVC rules, that got them to think. Oh, thank you for doing that. But that, that my whole point is that's the problem. There are places in the world where this problem exists, where... They, they just think everything is their Guru Maharaj, and they think Prabhupada's like, I can't understand him, I don't have any connection with him, I just have connection with my Guru. And that is 100% wrong. Um, um, Kamini said, I have never heard you speak so intensely about any other topic. Thank you. Yeah, because this is the reason I haven't spoke intensely about this is because such an intense issue in the 80s and 90s and it's like I think I was just trying to forget it and I've spoken about it in conferences I've spoken about it with devotees and then all I thought was well all I can do is just myself tell people to connect with Prabhupada but with the passing of Bhakti Chiroswami, it's just been brought to the forefront because this was, this was was on his mind more than anything, more than the cow project he was doing. This was on his mind, and it just became an impetus to like amongst not only myself but many of my godbrothers to bring this out and start doing something, and and feeling like before we leave our bodies, we have to in, inculcate this that your foundational relationship is with Prabhupada, your guru is. His, his job is to bring you closer to Prabhupada. You choose a guru who can bring you closer to Prabhupada. You are representing Prabhupada. You have as close a relationship with Prabhupada as any Diksha guru. These things, we have to create that culture before we go. Otherwise, it's going to be a mess. And we have a then failed Prabhupada. And uh, any offensive comments here in the comments section can be easily deleted by any of you. Page administrator. Yeah, someone made some. It's, it's amazing. Now, after a Vaishnava, such a, a, a advanced Vaishnava leaves, people could be criticizing him. But I've seen that. After a, a great devotee leaves and everyone's lamenting, someone gets on. He's a rascal. He's a offender to Prabhupada. Hare Krishna. This is amazing. Um, my temple is very strict. From day one, this was ingrained into me that Prabhupada is the center. We should read his books. Fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you. So happy to have emphasized this bit. Yeah. He did good, Vijay Lakshmi. She's a warrior. Vijay. Miss my question. Can you write it again? Um, Krishna Krishna, can you write the question again? K 
cap S. This is what we were talking about yesterday. Have a listen. What is cap S? Cap S. Can you explain that, Nikhil? This is really sobering, uh, a real wake-up call for us. Please share this. Share the video. Share what you learned. You and your God brothers make Prabhupada accessible for me. Through you all, my heart opened to Prabhupada. Please keep writing books. Oh, so I guess your books help us. Yeah, I kind of can't stop writing, but those were, those were his thoughts. Like, wait a minute, you know. There is a solution for every problem our mind creates in Prabhupada's books, and even his morning walks. Jai. Your books help me to understand Prabhupada's books better. Okay, so I'll keep writing. They're necessary. They help us open our minds. Okay. Thanks for the feedback. I won't give up. Would it be possible for someone to post this class on YouTube? Yeah, well, we post everything on my YouTube page, but getting it out to everyone, that's another thing. If you can all share, that would be good. So, Krishna Karshani, we're finished. I'm just waiting for your... If you can rewrite your question, because I... I'm invisible to your questions. Um, I've just tagged my friend, Gurmaj. We were discussing this topic yesterday. Okay. And tell him to tag the universe with it. Okay. So, this was already on my mind. I was going to make, I was going to do a talk, but it was just going to go to my disciples. I was going to do a video just for my disciples. And this is what I want you to understand about taking Prabhupada into the future. But then I thought, this was Bhakti Charaswami's heart, so why don't we just give a class about it? And then whoever needs to hear this can hear it. And I sent a message to my disciples to please listen to this class or um, listen to it after it's recorded. It's very important. Yeah. Um, please share it. So, Krishna Karshani, I don't see a question. And if I go back, 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 back. I missed my question, so it should be close. I always miss your questions. Okay, we're looking for her question. Don't go anywhere. Must be an important question. She wants me to answer it. So many comments. Hmm, I don't see it. Maybe it never came to my... Maybe uh, it never came to my... I don't see it. I gave up looking, Krishna Koshima. In a letter you wrote yesterday to the disciple of Lakshmi, you said that the biggest mistake after Sri Dupat's departure was that devotees did not take enough time for grieving. Could you please elaborate um, on the statement how to grieve after you... Yeah, I'm actually going to give a class on this. Unfortunately, it's to a woman's sangha, so I don't know if men can listen in, but you can you can listen in afterwards. And I remember maybe 20 years or 30 years ago, a survey was sent out to temples, and they said, please meet with your temple councils and answer this question. What did we do wrong after Prabhupada left? And... The number one response was we didn't take time to grieve. So part of part of not taking time to grieve was um, oh, do I have a class today at ten o'clock? 
Somebody's calling me. Um, do I have a class today? Ten o'clock? Maybe. Maybe not. I hope not. Hold on, hold on. Let me check my calendar. No, nope, I'm good. Somebody's calling. So, so the idea was, Prabhupada left, and our mood was, well, now that Prabhupada's left, we have to put everything in a fifth gear, just push it up, push the pedal to the floor. You know, we've got a, the responsibilities in our, hand, in our hands, let's take it up. And so it was like, let's move forward. But you need time to reflect on your loss, to feel your loss. And it, it, it's like, you know, your father dies, and then the next day you're like at the bank, you know, talking to the banker about the money that he just left you. You know, it's, it was something like that. It was like, no, what does this mean? What does this represent? But we didn't, I would say also, aside from grieving, we didn't take enough time to consider how we were going to move forward. We did it too quickly, and a lot of, some of the leaders were pushing that we need to do this right away. Others were waiting, saying, I'm not sure what to do, how to do this, how to do this guru business. And the general mood was when one of the leaders started initiating, the general mood was, he initiated before any decision was made by the GBC how to go forward. A lot of us were upset. Like, why did he do that? Like, we don't, we don't really know. Our father's gone. We don't know exactly the best way to move forward. And it just moved too fast. And it was done without deeply thinking. Of course, we might not have been able to deeply think because we were young and didn't have experience. But just processing the whole thing and just... Um, I think also it could be at that time a lot of devotees felt, well, you're not supposed to lament. And it would be wrong, wrong to grieve and wrong to lament. And we're asking, should we grieve? How should we feel? It was a confusing time. And because we were confused, we just needed time to be confused, I think. And just like, take it slow, don't worry. You don't have to do anything. You know? But what about Maharaj's projects? What about his temples? Like, don't worry. You know, it'll, it has to happen naturally. Stabilize yourself. Um, grieving is a process of purification. It's a process of getting grounded to be able to deal with life again and to get yourself in the proper position. And it, it'll take time. And you can't force it. Something like that. But we'll talk about... I, I have to go now. We'll talk about that more in this class I'm giving. I'm giving Thursday morning. It's on the Sadvi the sadvi sangha, something like that, for them. So, unless you have a sex change in the next two days, you're not allowed to go on. But then you'd have to be accepted in the sadvi sangha after your sex change. So, Hare Krishna. But we'll talk about, but anyway, it'll be recorded. I, wanted to, I think it's an important topic, and I would like to share that discussion. On how, I think it's, uh, I, was, I was thinking... We need to talk about this. It's so important. And then this devotee asked me, I was supposed to give a class to the Sadhvi Sangha on another topic. And she said, I think now is not the time for another topic. Can you talk about this topic? And I thought, well, that's perfect. Because this is something that's on my mind that we need to talk about. And so it's perfect timing. So Bhakti Charaswami's disappearance is really inspiring a lot of devotees to think about what was important. And what was important to Maharaj, what was in his heart, we understand that's in Prabhupada's heart. I think we can make that assumption. 
100%. If it was in his heart, his heart is Prabhupada's heart. It's in Prabhupada's heart, and we have to take it. Hare Krishna. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for being devotees in Iskana, trying to help spread this movement and staying despite all the problems and difficulties we might face. Hare Krishna. So the Prabhupada Ki Jai, Go Premanandi.